The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, Sheila Zielinski. Hey, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this Monday, June 20th edition. I broadcast Monday to Friday. That's weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern right here on WINB. Hey, and to find out more ways to listen to the program, including the podcast and the customized app, the Weekend Vigilante app, and I'm getting some good feedback on that, and we're making a couple more really neat changes, so you're going to really like the Weekend Vigilante app. Just simply go to the Listen tab on the menu at weekendvigilante.com, And if you've not already done so, add me on social media, that's Twitter, Facebook, and especially the YouTube. The icons are there at the top right of my website. Hey, I apologize to my listeners for my June e-news letter being late. I was wanting to get it out Friday, but I was waiting to hear the official pre-order date of the new book from my publisher. As I said on the show Friday with Carla, If you have not listened to that show, by the way, you need to go listen to that. That's a show everyone needs to listen to. The book is Power Prayers, subtitled Warfare That Works. And let me tell you, it lives up to its title. The book costs for copy editing, book design, cover art, all that jazz. It's about, it's just shy of $5,000. So that comes out of our pocket. So if you guys pre-order the book, then we can pay the publisher to go forward. We need to see the pre-orders come in. And so it is available for pre-order. I'm told by the publisher that that pre-order should be ready. I'm hoping earlier, but I'm saying conservatively, this Friday, the book will be available for pre-order. I'm hoping it'll be on there tomorrow, but I'm giving till Friday just to really make sure Probably on the right-hand side, it'll say pre-order power prayers. Listen, there's nothing like that book, and that is a fact. I personally think every single Christian needs this book, and we need to be praying these prayers. I gave you only a small sample Friday when I did the prayer for our nation. We have a targeted prayer in that prayer, even against ISIS. I don't even get out of bed without doing my daily warfare prayer. That's in the book. There is nothing like this book. And it's not, oh, she's just saying that because it's her book. No, these prayers changed my life. They changed Carla's life. And we didn't develop them without hell coming to our doorstep, let me tell you. We already have these prayers. (laughs) We wrote them. So we've been asked to put this together by you guys. We're always getting asked if we can pray for people. How do you pray? I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray effectively. Well, let me tell you, this book should be on everyone's bookshelf. So I think it's really important. And again, there should be a pre-order button on my website, hopefully earlier than Friday, but if not, Friday for sure, I am told. And so on a final note, that e-newsletter will be sent out tomorrow now that I've confirmed the date for the pre-orders. So thank you for being patient. And I'm very hopeful that you get your pre-order in as well. Well, let's jump right into things. Today on the program, my guest is the highly acclaimed Chris Putnam, speaker, researcher, and he is the best-selling author of Petrus Romanus, Exo Vaticana, 
the supernatural worldview on the path of the immortals. And him and I recently contributed to another book that Tom's got out, Once We Were a Nation. That's going to be a really neat book coming out on Independence Day, July 4th. So you want to be looking for that book. It is a compilation of a bunch of incredible authors. And I had the privilege of being asked to submit a chapter. And mine is When Once We Are a Nation of Liberties. And I'm really looking forward to that book coming out. Chris, of course, as you know, is recognized for his expertise in the area of biblical prophecy and apologetics. And he joins me today. And I'm excited because we had Tom on last week getting into sort of the one side of the book. But today, Chris is really going to bring another part of the book home. And of course, the book is The Final Roman Emperor, The Islamic Antichrist, and The Vatican's Last Crusade. Chris is quickly becoming one of my favorite guests. He's remarkably brilliant. His research is unparalleled. And it's just really a privilege to have him on the program. This guy knows his stuff. Chris Putnam, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure as always. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for saying that I'm quickly becoming one of your favorite guests. (laughs) Well, it's very true. Chris, where I want to start here is you had a very interesting dream. I thought that was really fascinating. Talk about this dream you had back in 2012 when you were still writing Petrus Romanus. And you kind of believe that first part of the dream. Maybe that's already come to pass. What was it? Well, normally I, I don't talk about this kind of stuff because I don't, you know, want people to think I'm kooky or anything. Because you know, I do a lot of apologetic type argumentation, and you know, I'm trying to to convince people that it's rational to believe in Christianity. So I don't like to come out with a lot of my own personal spiritual experiences or anything like that. But Tom was writing about his, and um, he, you know, and I reminded him, "Do you remember when I told you about this dream?" And he remembers it, and my wife remembers it. So I have other witnesses. So for that reason, I'm not really um, hesitant to talk about it, especially in light of the fact that Tom was actually making specific predictions in this new book. Now, a lot of people might be aware that we predicted uh, Benedict would step down, and that came to pass. That's kind of a one of our claims to fame now. Now, in that one, we didn't say that we definitely knew that would happen. We were very speculative about that. But um, in this book, Tom kind of went on a limb, and he's gave some specific predictions. He thinks that ISIS will use a nuclear weapon, and he thinks that there will probably be a great revival of Christianity somewhat. As the end times approach, people will see these prophecies coming to pass, and more people will become Christian. And I don't really have a problem with that. Um, I think the world in general is falling away, but there will be a revival of the church in that how can you not recognize when all this stuff starts happening? And I think a lot of people will come back into the fold or something like that. Now, as far as the dream I had, so, so Tom, a lot of the stuff that he's talking about were, were dreams, you know, from a dream thing, from a near-death experience he had, and it comes back to him in dreams, it seems like. Now, mine was right when Tom and I had first teamed up and were working on Petrus Romanus. I had the dream while I was working on that book, before it even was published, and I told my wife about it immediately the next morning, and it was just really bizarre. I didn't really put a lot of stock in it or anything. I didn't think it was, um, you know, a prophetic dream or a precognitive dream is what parapsychologists would call it, you know, a dream about the future. But it obviously was set in the future, but I didn't put any stock in it. And really, it comes down to this. I thought that I was working on a TV news type show or something. It was like as a news, newscast or something. And I was sitting in the desk. There were some other people there. We were talking. 
I can't remember, you know, who they were or anything like that necessarily. But we were sure that the end times had started. We were announcing that on the on the television. So that's both parts. But the first part, this was in 2012, you know, before Petrus Romanus was published. Tom had never mentioned anything about television or video. I, I was completely in the dark. I don't even think he had decided to do it yet. And so there was nothing, you know, no reason that I would suspect that. But I believed that I was on TV working for Tom Horn on some kind of news show. You know, so when he offered me a job working at Skywatch TV, <laughs> you know, I was astounded. And that dream came back to my memory. And my wife remembers it. And, and I told her right when it happened. I told Tom later we were doing interviews for Petrus Romanus about you know a few months after that. And uh, we were in the parking lot of Southwest Radio Church in Oklahoma City sitting in a pickup truck. I said, Tom, yeah, I had this weird dream. I was working for you on television. And he's like, really? The significant thing is the second part that I said. We were announcing that the end times had started. I can't trying to recall exactly why. You know how dreams are kind of murky when you try to remember back. Yeah. But it was something like there was some kind of huge explosion or an earthquake in the Middle East. But for some reason, we thought maybe the sixth seal had broken or, or something of that nature. And there was something about the incident we were reporting that that made us think that the end times had started. And that's really all I remember. I think I woke up then. We seemed to be convinced, the people that were on the TV show, that, that it was going on. And, you know, for that reason, you know, the fact that the first part literally came to pass uh, the way it has, I am working on television, and it is kind of like a new ca newscast, the way I remember it. And I didn't know that was going to happen. And, you know, it seems like it's already already been fulfilled. So that kind of implies maybe the second part might be as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, very interesting dream. And we certainly are seeing such a culmination of events taking place that really signals something. Now, of course, in your book, well, it's right in the title, The Islamic Antichrist, the Mahdi, as they call him, for those Mahdists or Mahdism, I guess the first question is, is there an Islamic Antichrist? And if so, walk us through that. As far as, is there an Islamic Antichrist? <laughs> I don't think so. I know there's some popular books out there. And it's an appealing idea in a way that they are obviously um, opposing the Jews in Jerusalem. And they won't let them on the Temple Mount. And the Muslims are driving all the terrorism. So their activity definitely seems to be you know, part of the Antichrist type agenda against the Jews, for sure, you know, against Jerusalem, against the temple. And that part all fits really well. You know, it fits a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament because they all centered on nations that surrounded Israel. So for those reasons, it's, it's very compelling. Yet, you know, you look at passages like John 5, 4, 3, where Jesus says, you know, I come in my own name and you do not recognize me. You know, someone else will come in a different name and you will. Now, that kind of implies that the, he was talking to the Jews, and he was saying, you don't recognize me, you're Messiah, but somebody else is going to come, and you will recognize him as the Messiah. Yeah. Now, that sounds like the Antichrist is going to be seen as the Jewish Messiah. Now, I don't know how a Muslim could pull that off. So that, that, that kind of seems to falsify it. And some of these other passages, you know, they talk about the Antichrist. Yeah, I just don't see that it's necessarily a Muslim. That's more circumstantial because of, of the situation that Israel's in right now. Uh, Islam, you know, hadn't even been conceived yet when the New Testament was composed. So I, I don't see anything that necessarily points to that. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying I doubt it. And those are the reasons why. 
you know, even so, I mean, Catholics and Muslims both are prepared to accept a human leader as their savior figure, okay? And Jews are as well, because they're expecting a new Messiah, right? So you have Jews, Catholics, Muslims, all expecting a human ruler to kind of set the world straight before Christ returns. Now, for Catholics, they call it the great Catholic king and the great Catholic monarch. And for Muslims, it's the Mahdi, who you mentioned. And uh, you also use the word modest or modism, which is an extension of that word. And I'll explain that too. So the Mahdi is this figure in Islam who appears and establishes a worldwide caliphate and makes the world basically Muslim, puts us under Sharia law. This is what, you know, all the people who are, you know, warning us against Islam taking over the United States. And some of that just sounds ridiculous to people, but that is their goal. I mean, their goal is to Islamify the world. That is what the religion says. And um, they have an eschatology. And I think it's largely just uh, plagiarized from the New Testament myself because, you know, Muhammad didn't come around till 600 or so, and the New Testament had been written for 500 years then. There's a little bit about the day of resurrection, a right. couple chapters, and that's it. But there's no Mahdi, there's no Dajjal, none of that, you know. Now, I think they do mention Jesus, Isa, they call him, and, you know, that he's going to return and that he would, you know, facilitate this resurrection a bit. But, um, you know, you don't see all these other details. Now, what does that tell you? Muhammad probably didn't say any of that stuff. You know, it's not in the Quran. I mean, he would have put it in there if he knew it. I don't think he was even aware of the eschatology that most Muslims believe today. And here's why. For instance, the Mahdi, who we're talking about, and just to define that term, Mahdism or Mahdism, like when we say that ISIS is a modest cult. I'm not saying that, that they're shy. Their modest is M-A-H-D-I-S-T, meaning they expect the Mahdi to come soon. And for that reason, they're willing to do almost anything to facilitate that because he's going to set it all straight. So there's no problem with setting off a nuclear weapon, even nearby, because the Mahdi will appear. Now, there is a distinct difference between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of the prophecy authors and prophecy books tend to focus on Shia, which is Iran, and it, largely because of the threat of nuclear weapons that Iran's posing and things like that. But that's where you get this idea of a 12th imam, is Shia. Okay? Now, ISIS is not Shia. ISIS is Sunni. They don't believe in a 12th imam. The 12th imam idea is that you know, the 12th guy from Muhammad, he basically was raptured. They used the word occulted. You know, he was hidden away somewhere. And so you have some Muslims that believe that he is like in a well or a cave or something. And that, you know, he's, apparently he's immortal because he's been there for, you know, a thousand years or so. This guy is supposed to reappear, the same guy that never aged apparently or, or whatever. But Sunnis find that belief ridiculous and make fun of it. Okay, it's kind of like some of the pre-trib rapture and the post-trib rapture people who kind of go back and forth. It's sort of that sort of in-house debate. But Shias and Sunnis kill each other over this stuff. It's not. Yeah. It's not a debate. It's it's war. In fact, they seem to hate each other more than they hate Jews or Americans, even. You know, so it, it, that's pretty bad. While the Shiites are essentially waiting for this geopolitical kind of ultimate savior of humankind, the right. as you said, the finally mom. This is kind of almost like a end-time apocalyptic death cult, really. 
Oh, it definitely is. And yeah, I think those are words that I used exactly. And I think I could probably pick that up from the scholar Timothy Furnish, maybe, is where I first heard apocalyptic death cult. He was talking about the contrast between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, or ISIS. And the difference is, Al-Qaeda was not modest. They were not, they did not, Osama bin Laden didn't expect the Mahdi to come back in his lifetime. So he was interested in just kind of terrorizing the United States and doing all these things to pave the way towards that. Now, he did believe it was going to happen. He just didn't think it was necessarily soon. But ISIS does. And that's what they're based on. Uh, Zarqawi was one of the early guys in the formation of ISIS. And his people, they all believed that you know, they had to declare a state. They had to declare a worldwide caliphate for the Mahdi to take over. And so they're doing all these things to facilitate his arrival. They've even built pulpits in Jerusalem and places like that for the Mahdi to preach from. So these are standing right now. One of the shocking things about the Islamic State is President Obama acted very surprised when all this started happening. You know, and oh, this group just popped up in 2014 and declared this worldwide caliphate. That's all nonsense. He's lying. For probably since 2003, and or even earlier, maybe some people would say 1999 in some of the books I read. But I mean, I I even published a copy of an intelligence document warning Obama about ISIS a full year before the 2014 stuff happened, and so he was very well aware of them and. The thing about that document that's in the book is also it said it specifically warned that a new rogue state would form before it happened. And so they they were more than aware of this. You know, they watched it happen. I think they let it happen because they thought that they could use him against Syria, use the Islamic State to marginalize the Syrian government who they're trying to get rid of. And it didn't work, obviously. And now we have Paris being bombed. They're threatening all kinds Rome, I- India. You know, this event in Orlando is connected to the Islamic State because the guy that did it, he called and reported it on the phone himself and then pledged allegiance to the Islamic State and Baghdadi right there on the phone when he called and reported the crime that he just committed. Now, did they put him up to it? It it sounds like maybe they did. Um, They have extended outreach via social media, Twitter, Facebook. This is how they recruit. And they're using the World Wide Web to their advantage, uh, more so than any other terrorist group has ever done. So you have this modest, apocalyptic death cult. Now, the, the quote I was trying to say is, yeah, Furnish said, if, if it is an apocalyptic death cult, ISIS is an apocalyptic death cult on steroids. Wow, that's quite a term. Well, it also ties into what you find in your pseudepigraphal, sort of the pseudomethodius eschatology derivative. Yeah, that's where it all gets uh, even more interesting, and this is what really intrigued me when I when I learned this information because I've been reading about you know the Mahdi and this Islamic Antichrist. I've read books by Joel Rosenberg and and the the other Joel uh, Joel Richardson. Yeah, they're both Joels, and that's what always throws me off. Richardson, I've met, and he's a Christian too, but you know, some of the the way that he interprets the Bible to to fit it to be is Islam, I find that to be stretching. For instance, in Daniel, he tries to say, you know, when Daniel interprets the dream of the statue, and it's got four kingdoms, you know, based on the the silver and the bronze, you know, with the ten toes. You know, some are made of miry clay. He he tries to cast that as the the kingdom of Islam, and I just don't see that at all. I, I don't accept that. You know, where did the Mahdi come from? You know, you know they they claim 
that Muhammad said this, Muhammad said that, and that's what these hadiths are. The hadith are a collection of sayings of Muhammad, and this is what most of the details in Islamic eschatology are based on. And this is hearsay evidence. It's, it's all written hundreds of years after Muhammad's lifetime, and it's things that say like this, uh, Sheikh so-and-so heard Sheikh blah, 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 report that the prophet said. <laughs> so kind of a guy heard it from a guy that heard it from a guy. <laughs> right, exactly like that. And, you know, this is what's supposed to be authoritative. No, <laughs> but it's written hundreds of years after the fact uh, by people who never even met Muhammad. So it's stretching. And even Muslims don't take some of the Hadith seriously. They have, they rate them like this one's, you know, probably accurate and this one's not, but nobody really knows anything. And for that reason, I suspect that a lot of it's made up, uh, just plagiarized or, or just outright created and, you know, work of fiction, basically. And some of the prophecies, I think, have already been falsified, and we can talk about that a little bit, but the one about the Mahdi. Now, you're asking me about this pseudepigraphal work. Well, I think it comes from that work, and what we're talking about is a piece of Syrian literature that appeared around Damascus in the 7th century, you know, about a few hundred years after Muhammad, maybe 100 to 200. But you can't find any sources where Muhammad talks about a Mahdi that are dated before this. So, it seems to be derivative. The thing that's really the most interesting, though, is that the Catholic belief in this great Catholic monarch stems from the apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius. Now, this was an apocalypse, which is the same as Revelation. It's just the Greek word. So it's like a new book of Revelation that came out 500 years after John wrote Revelation. And, you know, it speaks of, it really does describe the rise of Islam. That's why a lot of scholars think it's prophecy after the fact, because it's so accurate about the rise of Islam, it appears to be basically a summation of what actually just happened. And so they think that, you know, some anonymous Christians wrote this thing and you know, basically, you know, they sold it. It was, it was a product. I mean, it was really popular uh, in the 600s around Syria and everyone believed it. it was authentic. They thought that they had discovered the apocalypse of the church father, Methodius, who lived around 300 in, in that range. We don't think Methodius wrote it. It's not similar to his writing. He wrote nothing else like that. And he seemed to have all this foreknowledge of the rise of Muhammad and Islam and all that. And it just It's kind of stretching credulity to believe that uh, Methodius really prophesied all this stuff. So what do they think it is? They think it's a, it's a hodgepodge of different things that maybe more than one author composed it. But one of the most interesting things is, is they seem to have borrowed from the Sibylline literature which is pagan Roman prophecy. And one of those spoke about a king, a final Roman emperor. The Sibylline Oracle gave this. Now, they seem to have borrowed that as a new prophecy, and they prophesied this great Christian king, our great Catholic monarch kind of thing that, that came out. This, these were Syrian Christians. They weren't necessarily Roman Catholic, but, you know, it was still the early church, and you know, they have a Eastern Orthodox, you know, carries on that tradition. So these Syriac Christians, you know, most people believed that it was, it was legitimate, and, you know, they took it to heart, and so they were expecting a uh, great Christian king to come into power and Christianize the world, basically. Now, I'm not aware that that's ever happened. <laughs> so the Mahdi, I think, is an apologetic response to the belief in the great Christian king, the great Catholic king that the Syrians believed in. Because this is where the Hadith are composed, right there around Damascus, same area is where the Hadith come from. 
you can imagine all these Muslims hearing all these rumors about this great Catholic king that's going to come and make the world Christian, and you know they're they're writing the Hadith. Hey, we got to counterpart this, so they create the Mahdi, and they say that Muhammad talked about him. And this is what you find in the Hadith. This great Muslim king is going to appear and make the world, you know, a worldwide caliphate and put us all under Sharia law. And so I really think the Mahdi is a fictional character based on the apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius. They call him Pseudo-Methodius because scholars now recognize that the original church father did not compose that apocalypse. So both the Catholic great monarch prophecy and the Mahdi prophecy stem from the same source. The apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, now that stems from the Kume Sibyl. So what do we have here? In Rome, you know, they had temples with the, the Sibylline Oracle in there. And this is a, usually a, it's a woman, prophetess, who goes into a trance. Uh, sometimes they burn some herbs or, or whatever that they're into smoking there. <laughs> she inhales it and, and goes into an altered state of consciousness and starts, you know, spewing off prophecies. And somebody writes it down. And this was very common in Rome. Uh, we have books and books of them. In fact, the early church even quoted some of them. I found, you know, apologists would quote, they'd be in arguments with, with pagan Romans, and they'd be trying to say, well, even your own oracle would say this, and you know, mention something about God or something like that. It doesn't necessarily make any of it valid prophecy, but it doesn't necessarily make it invalid either. I found that, you know, there are prophecies that come to pass that aren't necessarily Christian. Yes. Uh, that, that does happen. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Alice Bailey was in a trance when she wrote the 24 volumes of the occult. Interesting. You know, their ascended master. Yeah, that, that's mm -hmm. a theme, isn't it? But what you're saying is that there is connected to the Kume Sibyl, which is interesting when you look at the Sistine Chapel. Who knew, right? Yeah, I mean, Michelangelo painted the Sibyl right up there on the ceiling along with the Old Testament prophets. So, you know, the Sibyl was sort of revered in the ancient world. Now, hardly anybody knows about it now. What made this whole book kind of tie together with, with all of Tom Horn's work, especially, was that, you know, his whole claim to fame with the Polyon Rising and Zenith 2016 has been that the great Sibyl of the United States contains a Sibylline prophecy from the Kume Sibyl about the arrival of this final world leader. And there it is in our own great seal. And for that reason, you know, many have theorized that the Antichrist could be a U.S. leader or a U.S. president. And then, you know, when you tie that together with the um, false prophet being the Pope, which we kind of, we, we didn't kind of, we, we made that argument in Petrus Romanus. And, you know, I don't know if that's the truth or if it's our speculation, but what I wrote in this latest book, The Final Roman Emperor, The Islamic Antichrist, and the Vatican's Last Crusade, is that nothing that I speculated about the false prophet in the first book, Petrus Romanus, has been falsified. A lot of it seems to be confirmed, but confirmations are usually easy to find if you're looking for them. You know, you can always find things that seem to confirm what you're thinking most of the time, you know, unless it's really outlandish. But, I mean, nothing that Pope Francis has done screams to me he's not the false prophet. In fact, everything he does seems to, to reinforce it, um, you know, just from his, he, he would say, well, this might be a heresy, but I'm not really sure. I thought you were the Pope. <laughs> I mean, th that kind of attitude, you know, he just doesn't care about doctrine at all. And then to have Islamic prayer services at the Vatican, know. you know, a religion that says Christ never even died. So that just totally defeats the gospel. If he didn't die, he didn't die for your sins, did he? And, and you have nothing except your own righteousness. And then that means you're going to hell.
According to my theology, that's true, which is so surprising that the Pope is closely aligning himself with Islam. That is very stunning. ISIS is really concentrating to build their state. Of course, Obama always makes sure he says ISIL. I just find that interesting. But these jihadists, they have a belief. And think about the two very huge groups of religions. We've got, what, 1.3 billion Catholics. You've got around 1.8 billion Muslims. I mean, that's a third of the world's population, which is kind of interesting when you look <laughs> at Revelation. You, yeah. you know, That's just really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you know, those prophecies, especially this one, I think you're talking about the one about Dubik, and then, you know, three groups will come, there'll be three groups, one will die fighting, one third will run away, yeah. and the other third will be victorious, and they'll go on to conquer Constantinople. Now, there is no Constantinople now, it's called Istanbul, Turkey, and it's already Muslim. So, why do Muslims want to conquer a Muslim city? It, it makes no sense in that... That prophecy was written before the Ottoman Empire conquered Constantinople. So, if anything, they fulfilled it, but the next thing that's supposed to happen is the Antichrist appears and then Jesus comes down and defeats him. It sounds like that's within Constantinople when you read the Hadith. So, I think that's a falsified prophecy. Their whole claim to fame with this Dabiq, they named their their uh, propaganda magazine Dabiq. And that's a city in Syria. Yeah. Now, you know, it is in the Hadith that they'll fight the Crusaders at the beak. So they're trying to lure, you know, the United States there or the UN or whoever's going to end up going after them to the beak because they think that they can fulfill that prophecy and, and be successful. And then I guess they're going to move on to Istanbul. But it, that doesn't make a lot of sense other than they don't like the kind of Islam that they practice there, probably. And so it'll be a Muslim-on-Muslim Muslim war. It will not be against Constantinople, which was, you know, prior to the Ottoman Empire, the head of the Christian church on the eastern side. So that's it's called Constantinople because Constantine changed it from Rome to Constantinople. So it goes back to the point you're making. You don't think there is a Mahdi. Yeah, I mean, there might be a guy that they identify as him, and that's happened many times. Uh, over the last century even. Um, the guys have wiped out tons of people in Africa claiming to be the Mahdi. So, you know, I don't think there truly is a Mahdi. That's not really going to happen. That prophecy is false, I believe. And, you know, it's, it's plagiarized from the apocalypse of Pseudomethodius. So there's not necessarily even a Mahdi at all, really. Um, but there probably will be somebody that a lot of Muslims believe is the Mahdi. And, you know, that's a different thing. But well, the false prophet attached to that? Well, I think he already is, if we're right about Pope Francis, because he's having Islamic prayer services at the Vatican, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you could say this character, whom they believe is the Mahdi, would unite with the false prophet. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know who that character will be yet. It might be Baghdadi or somebody. I, I don't know. People think that they established the worldwide caliphate in 2014 and Baghdadi is the caliph. They haven't said he's the Mahdi, but they've called, they're calling him the caliph. He's the head of the whole of all of Islam right now, according to what ISIS believes. Now, of course, the Saudi Arabians would take exception with that, and so would the Iranians, but um, the Saudis don't like ISIS. They, they think it's giving Islam a bad name, they say. But the thing that's interesting is they practice the exact same form of Islam. Wahhabi Islam is, is what both of them believe in. But ISIS is modest. And they believe the Mahdi is coming soon, and the Saudi Arabians don't. That's the only difference, is Mahdism. That's why it's such an important concept in this book, the belief that the Mahdi is coming very soon. 
and Mahdism. And that's the difference between Saudi Arabia and ISIS. That's really, the rest of it's all the same. All the, you know, killing homosexuals, cutting people's hands off, cutting their feet off, all that stuff's all the same. They do that in Saudi Arabia too. And they're our great ally. You know, another thing I discovered in writing this book is that the government's lying to us. <laughs> it probably doesn't surprise your listeners. Um, <laughs> but this idea that we're in the Middle East to spread democracy and freedom is false. Right. It's not even official U.S. policy. Um, I read a book by a scholar who was writing before 9-11, so it wasn't quite as explicit to say something like this. Uh, the crisis of Islam, he quotes you know, documents from the U.S. government where our official policy in the Middle East is to promote unrest. We are there to promote unrest, to make it unstable. That's what our policy has been since the 1970s. And the reason why, you know, the listeners that are my age are... You know, close, will remember in the early 70s, there was this huge OPEC oil crisis. This is where the Saudis formed this coalition, OPEC, to control all the oil. And they raised the prices, you know, way above normal. And we were waiting in line for gas for days sometimes in 73, I believe. I remember waiting in line with my dad for many hours just to get, you know, a little bit of gas. And, you know, that really crippled the United States in the early 70s for a while. And we didn't want to allow that to ever happen again. And so the idea was we can't let one power in the Middle East get control of all the oil. Because if they do, they'll cripple us because we need the oil. And so the, our policy ever since then has been to promote unrest, to make it where they can't unite. We want them fighting each other all the time so they can't get together and control the oil. And so that's been our policy. And, you know, the idea when Bush comes out saying we're going to, you know, Iraq to promote democracy. No, no, that's not true. Um, I just don't believe it for a second. Yeah. You know, our official policies promote unrest. Right. There's no doubt about it. Which really also, speaking of unrest, really ties in with the Pope saying, well, you know, we might have to all collectively deal with ISIS. And he's hinting, of course, that the United Nations could be the world authority to do that by promoting what? Well, a just war. That's really interesting, isn't it? It is. And, you know, he's technically correct. I mean, I think it would be just to stop ISIS. I mean, they've wiped out most of the Eastern Orthodox Christians in Syria. I mean, they're either displaced or they're dead. And we don't really know the full death toll yet because there's so many of them that are refugees, we can't even count them. And so the rest of them are dead, though, that, that aren't refugees. Um, you know, they had their heads cut off, probably. I mean, they were doing that by the truckload when they took over Syria, that area of Syria there. Um, so it's, it's really bad. It really is a holocaust. It really is genocide. Um, and it's mostly on Christians. So for that reason, you know, it's hard to argue against the Pope saying we need to stop ISIS. It's the way he wants to do it that, that kind of sends up red flags to me. Number one, why is the Pope the one doing that? I mean, he's not really supposed to be a political power anymore. It's kind of going back to the old days where the Pope was like the king. You know, he's up there calling for an international force, and he mentions the UN specifically. He said it can't be done by only one country, and he was taking a stab at the United States when he said that. Um, you know, we can't allow one nation to, to do this. We have to, you know, have the United Nations do this. You know, it has to be a world power that does this. So what I see uh, when I look at ISIS as far as prophecy, when I look at Islam, I really think more than the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim or that, you know, we're going to be put under Sharia law. I just don't see that happening. I don't think people in the United States would allow that. 
I wouldn't. I would die before they did that. I would die fighting uh, against it. So I I don't think that's going to happen. But I do see Islam as a tool of the devil to mislead people into a false sense of hope. Um, Also, to prepare the world for the Antichrist. Now, what has to happen for that to happen? Well, we have to become a global system. I mean, it says that one man's going to be in power of every nation, every tongue. So how does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight. But if everyone's scared to death of terrorism, we are all very well that people will give up freedoms. That's what the Patriot Act is all about, right? Um, we see it happening in Europe with the refugees, with what happened in Paris. People are scared. And so they want a global police force, basically, to stop ISIS. And that's what the Pope's calling for. We need the United Nations to do it. So it's pushing us toward globalism. It's pushing us toward a global government, a global economy, you know, a global military, all of this. And that's where we're heading. And it's obvious that that's where we're heading. You know, Chuck Missler is, is fond of talking about things in the Bible that seem to be technology statements. You think about the mark of the beast. Uh, one man's going to control who can buy or sell. Now, when John wrote that prophecy, you know, around 90 AD, that wasn't even feasible. It wasn't even imaginable how you could control how everyone in the world could buy or sell. I mean, there was no way to implement that um, unless it was completely supernatural. But today, you know, with the internet and all the chips and RFIDs and credit card strips. There's there's multiple technologies that could pull that off. Now, it might be hard to implement it like in rural China or somewhere in the middle of a jungle, but the technology is there. The means are there. And they weren't there up until the last, what, 50 years or so. So that tells me that we very well could be living in the time that it's going to happen because it wasn't even possible until our lifetime, and now it is. So it's possible. It's logically possible. Someone could implement that. A recent chapter I wrote in another book that Tom Horn is putting out about we weren't for a great nation. And I talked about industry and how we used to make things here, and now they're all made in China and other places, um, and why I think that's a problem. But one of the American companies that is making things uh, is is going to implement a global internet system based on satellites. They've developed a new satellite technology where they can um, mass-produce cheaper satellites, and they're going to throw up a network around the whole world relatively soon where everybody can get internet. And we're talking about in rural India, in the jungle of China, anywhere, because it's all going to be satellite-based, and they're going to have more satellites in this network than have ever been possible before. So that's going to happen. There's competing companies working on it, but I mentioned two specifically and uh, explain one of them in detail because I think it's probably going to be the winner because of the satellite technology. So we're really getting close to somebody being able to implement something like the Mark of the Beast. So how does Islam fit into that? Like I said, I think they're mainly used for fear. It's to push people towards accepting this globalism, to accepting uh, a worldwide ID card, to accepting the fact that you know your emails are read and your phone calls are listening to and, and all of this. This puts us in a surveillance state that is the perfect setup for a totalitarian-type leader like the Antichrist. Well, and do you find it interesting that Vladimir Putin, of course, you look at Patrick Krill, you covered him in your book, The Leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, both ex-KGB agents, kind of leading this assault on ISIS. In fact, the Russian church, as you've alluded to, labeled it a crusade. You know, Mm -hmm. you kind of look at this last crusade idea. Talk about the term the last crusade and how does all this tie into the Battle of Armageddon? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a chapter in this new book, The Final Roman Emperor, The Islamic Antichrist, and The Vatican's Last Crusade, where I cover theories of war. And why is that important? Well, you know, one of the arguments we're making is Pope Francis is invoking language from Thomas Aquinas's just war policy that the, the Catholic Church bases, you know, its theology on of war, basically, on that. It's a war ethic, is what it is. Now, war ethics, you, know, you have just war. That, that would be one, you know, where a just cause. You look at, you know, there's two types of ethics that are involved in the just war policy. One is right conduct during war, you know, do you kill civilians? Do you kill only combatants? You know, that, that's the kind of question you'd ask for that. And the other one is, is it a just cause? And Pope Francis has used that term specifically, just cause. It's a just cause that we stop ISIS, blah, blah, blah. And so when he uses those terms, you know that he's pointing to Aquinas's ethics there. And, you know, he's justifying a war. So he is calling for a war. Now, is he calling for a crusade? Well, the thing that's interesting is that, you know, the, the Catholic Church is famous for the Crusades around the year 1000, and, and shortly after that, there were several of them where we tried to take Jerusalem. The Crusade theory of war is especially troubling because the Crusade theory of war, it comes from the Old Testament, okay? So we can't divorce ourselves from it entirely because that's what Joshua was doing when they went into Jericho. That's what they were doing when they wiped out all the Amorites. Or, you know, we think that it's likely that these were not fully human beings, that they had been uh, polluted by the Nephilim, and that, you know, they were like some kind of hybrid, perhaps. That's one of the top explanations, I think, for why they were so ruthless. And God said, kill everything that moves. Don't leave anything living. You know, a gene pool problem explains that pretty well why God would say that. But this is a crusade theory of war. And what it means is almost anything you want to do is justified as long as it accomplishes the goal. So you kill all the kids, you kill all the innocent bystanders, you just wipe them out uh, indiscriminately because they're all evil by definition. You know, if you're on a crusade from God and he says, kill everything that moves, you do that, right? And that's how Muslims justify jihad. And that's why they can cut people's heads off and, and do all the atrocious acts that we see is they are operating from a crusade theory of war. They have a divine mandate to do anything they want. That's what they believe, as long as it moves them toward that goal. It doesn't matter how unethical, or it doesn't matter if they lie, it doesn't matter if they cheat. You know, none of those things matter. It doesn't matter if you kill women and children. It doesn't matter, you know, if you kill innocent bystanders. None of that matters, because you're on a crusade, all right? And that's the way the Vatican, that's the way the Catholics acted when they took Jerusalem in the Middle Ages. And that's why they're called the Crusades. Now, it's interesting now, you know, that they rethought that. <laughs> that's what Aquinas was doing. He's like, yeah. you know, maybe that was a little misguided. And so they came up with this just war policy. And that's kind of what the United States tries to do as well. You know, we want to have a just cause for war. And we do have, you know, a, a democratic republic in the sense that we're allowed to criticize it. So Bush came under a lot of criticism for invading Iraq. And a lot of people would say that that was kind of crusade-like. In fact, Bush actually used the word crusade in one of his speeches, and that was probably a mistake. <laughs> but we don't have a divine mandate to wipe out everything that moves. Now, Islam thinks they do. The United States certainly should not believe that. We don't. But Bush did use that word. Now, the Russian church has used that word recently. Right after the Paris attacks, one of the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church called it a new crusade against ISIS. So basically, he's saying anything goes. 
You know, we can nuke them. We can use chemical weapons. We can kill all the women. We can do anything we want. It's a crusade. That's what that means when you say that. We're going on a crusade. It means anything you want to do is okay as long as it progresses that goal forward. And, you know, that's not the way we want to be operating as Christians, that's for sure. And I don't think that's the way the United States wants to be viewed by the world either. Another word was used recently, too. The Pope, did you hear him say the word conquest? And then, of course, he was talking about Jesus' Great Commission, Islam should breed with all the Europeans. Those are some bizarre statements. And they really are. He, I, You know, it's really hard to, to figure him out. I mean, he, he really does seem to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth a lot of times. And that's why he, he fits that false prophet role so well. And the book of Revelation describes the false prophet as having... Horns like a lamb, yet speaks like a dragon. Now, horns like a lamb, powerful Christian leader. Horns are usually a symbol of power you know, in biblical prophecy and things of that nature. Animals with horns are considered you know, more powerful. And then, like a lamb, obviously, that would be Jesus in the New Testament. So he's a powerful, like a lamb person, but he speaks like a dragon. Boy, that really sounds like Pope Francis, the way he acts right now. He's so into this relativism, the postmodernism. Mm-hmm. You know, he's that's pushing, the dragon. <laughs> that's the dragon. You know, this inclusivism and pluralism and ecumenical interfaith movement. That's a flashing neon red flag for me. This cornucopia of all these charismatics meeting in July. I mean, Hillsong, Michael W. Smith, Casting Crown, Ravi Zacharias, Francis Chan. You've got a broad gathering of so many different strains. And that's happening in Washington, and it really is kind of symbolic, isn't it? It, it really is. I mean, it, it throws up all kinds of red flags, like you say. You know, I'm all for, you know, Christian unity. I'm all for getting together with my brothers and sisters in Christ who don't agree with, you know, doctrines that are, you know, somewhat tenuous. We can, we can disagree on Calvinism. We can disagree on the end time scenario. We can disagree on a lot of these kinds of things, and yet still believe that Christ died for our sins, he rose on the third day, and that he appeared to his uh, disciples. And we can believe those things and still disagree on these other things, as long as the gospel is there, right? And um, I don't have a problem, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with, with someone I have theological disagreements with. But when you talk about Pope Francis, he wants to stand shoulder to shoulder with Muslims, and they don't believe Jesus died at all. So he couldn't die for your sins. Um, so they don't even have the gospel. Pope Francis does not even have the gospel, apparently. So I don't want to stand hand in hand with those people. No. And that's what 2016, Together 2016 is doing. Now, they do have a lot of Christians, genuine Christians involved. I don't have any doubt that Francis Chan's a real Christian. I've heard him preach. He's Southern Baptist. He's pretty sound, and most of his theology is pretty good. But participating in this event, I don't think so. You know, I don't think that's sound. I think it's a mistake. Um, I think that you know the Southern Baptist Convention president is, is on board with it. I think that's a mistake. I think the Assemblies of God being on board with it is a mistake. Um, whether they disagree on other areas of doctrine is immaterial, really. The fact that you're having Pope Francis address this crowd, I think through a video feed or something, but that tells me that you're endorsing Roman Catholicism and they don't have the gospel, and that's a huge problem. Yes, and I'll tell you what else is a huge problem. When just back in May, Pope Francis, the good old Jesuit, one world pope, he claims that Mother Mary, she's the source of our hope, not Jesus Christ. I mean, the blasphemy sustained in this 
statement should make every Catholic stand up and take notice. That is stunning that he said that, and no one batted an eye in the Catholic Church. It, it is. And, you know, I covered a lot of that in the first book, Petrus Romanus. I mean, Catholics seem to think Jesus is too busy to hear their prayers. So let's pray to Mary, and he, she'll get the word to him. I mean, really? <laughs> It makes no sense. He's God. And Mary is not God. And that's the problem. You know, you're talking about a human woman who's deceased. So you're basically praying to a ghost. That's what you're doing. It's called necromancy. It's a dead human. Jesus is God. He's not just a human. So there's a big difference there. And they don't see that. I mean, they're just blind to the fact that they're praying to a dead woman. And how is Mary going to hear the prayers of billions of Catholics at the same time? She's not God, but Jesus can, because he is. And, you know, that's the difference. And they don't get that for some reason. I, I don't understand that, how Mary came elevated to the level of a deity. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, God has something to say about necromancy in the Word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a couple minutes left, Chris. In the waiting moments, what things or thing really surprised you the most as you were compiling your research for this latest book? Well, a couple things I'll, I'll say right off the bat. Um, you know, where does Pope Francis get all this Marxism and all this stuff from? Well, number one, he was the cardinal of what, Argentina? And Argentina's where? South America. Uh, we have South America, the you know, the biggest thing is liberation theology. And yep. it, it's this idea that, you know, Christianity is there to help you overcome the class struggle and, and not be poor anymore. You know, you have to be liberated from your slavery to money and to the you know economic system. That's really the idea is that all the poverty down in uh, South America is caused by capitalism and these oppressive Westerners. Um, and so they want to be liberated from that. It's really a form of communism is what it is. And one of the things that surprised me is that I uncovered during this research that the KGB really is responsible for liberation theology. The Russians, you know, you got Stalin and all these guys early on, right after World War II, and they're looking at the United States as their, their principal competitor, and we're capitalists, and they're looking at South America right below us with all these poor people, and they're like, what can we do propaganda-wise to make these people rise against the United States? Um, and one of their strategies was liberation theology. Uh, the, the material I read uh, says Patrick Krill, who is now the, the prelate of the Russian Orthodox Church, was a KGB agent, and I don't think he even covers that up. But he, during that time, he was a KGB agent, and he created liberation theology and then took it down to South America. And uh, the idea, it was, it was a propaganda effort to undermine the United States. And Pope Francis, being living in Argentina and being educated as a Jesuit there, is steeped in it. And Malachi Martin wrote specifically about the Jesuits and liberation theology. Uh, I read quite a bit about that and, and, and quoted Malachi Martin. He, you know, he was of the opinion that the Jesuits were trying to defeat the papacy. And you know, now we have a Jesuit pope. So that tells me the Jesuits won that war and that the liberation theology idea is really what they're, they're, they're promoting. And Pope Francis says it all the time. He's even used the words redistribution of wealth. And that comes right from Karl Marx and the, the Communist Manifesto. And uh, Pope Francis is a communist. There's just not any doubt about it. At least a socialist, but I think he's a communist, uh, period. Uh, by the, the idea of redistribution of wealth, is it's just a communist idea. 
And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that he's advocating. Now, he comes right from the, the heart of liberation theology, which is nothing but, you know, KGB propaganda. Uh, he buys into it. And it's not never going to work to make the class struggle go away. The only thing that's going to end poverty is the return of Jesus Christ. Capitalism works because it's theologically uh, accurate in that people don't want to help everybody else. People are looking out for themselves for the most part. And, you know, it has to be that way because we have a sin nature. Uh, most of us are selfish, whether we want to admit it or not. I mean, everyone, when it comes down to it, if it's you and your family or the other guy, it's going to be the other guy you know, that gets it. And, you know, we're just naturally that way. We protect our own. And part of that is our sin nature. And it's the fact that we live in a fallen world. And capitalism works because it recognizes that one man's going to work harder than the other man and to get something more. And socialism and communism don't work because they say everybody wants to be equal. It's kind of this idea that everybody's a good person, really. We just need to, you know, if everybody had equal this, everybody would be happy. No, they wouldn't. There's always going to be somebody that wants more, and they're going to try to get it. And that's because of our sin nature. And, you know, we don't want necessarily to, to love our brothers and, and to care for everybody because we can't. We have limited resources. That's why capitalism works. And that's why communism will never work because it assumes everyone's basically good and they're not. Yeah, you've raised some really good points there. And I was always fascinated in which I show in my book, Green Gospel, how the Pope just basically cut and paste Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto right into his climate encyclical that is frightening. Well, the book is The Final Roman Emperor, The Islamic Antichrist, and The Vatican Last Crusade. There you have it. And of course, people can contact you, Chris, at skywatchtv.com. And now you've got a really interesting show based on your book, The Supernatural Worldview. That sounds very exciting. We will keep our eye out for that. And I want to remind people that this is the last week to get that biggest giveaway of 2016. Tom Horn still has extended that blowout giveaway a few more days. That's if you get their book at the 1995 price, you get like something like $300 in amazing additional products. So that's just an amazing deal. That's on for a very limited time, like a couple more days. So do take advantage of that. You can go to skywatchtv.com. Chris, as always, it is such a pleasure to have you stop by the program and do come back and see us soon. Thank you very much, Sheila. Folks, that was Chris Putnam. His information is linked there on today's bio. Just go to weekendvigilante.com. We've got great shows lined up for this week, so you'll want to be definitely staying tuned to all of them. And again, if you have not listened to the show from Carla B. Todd on Friday, please do so. Thank you very much for tuning into the program today. We'll see you tomorrow. Good night and God bless you.